Amen. Amen. It's good. Hey, a couple of things I just want to share before we get into the message tonight. We have a couple of work anniversaries. We want to honor people here at City Life. And uh, Hannah was, I was like, Hannah almost made it all the way to the moment, and she's taking out her, oh, she's coming in right now, she's got great timing, hey! Hey, this is Hannah's two-year anniversary as the director of our preschool here, so, yeah. What impeccable timing. She didn't even know I was going to do that today. It's not like she was hiding around the corner waiting for her moment. So good. Just her leadership for the preschool, you know, two-year anniversary, that means half of her tenure here was during a global pandemic, right? Which, yeah, un unbelievable. But yet, her leadership, we survived, never had to drop staff. We have a waiting list now for the preschool, and so I know, it's good. She's also now taken over the before and after school program. That's a recent change, so she oversees all of that for us, and uh, she does a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal job. So thank you. Thank you. And then Vanessa, this month is her four-year anniversary on staff with us. Yep. She's been an elder from the beginning when we moved here in 2007, and she's really been a full-time staff person since 2007. We just started finally paying her four years ago, right, is, is, is the truth of it. And so if, if you know her, you know the excellence, the energy, right, the passion that she brings to everything that she does, right? So there'll be times where I'll say, isn't this good enough? And she's like, I don't even know what that phrase means, Fred. I don't even know what that phrase means. And so, she, yes, so if you uh, see Vanessa or Hannah at the end of the service or blow up their Facebook page, just thanking them for all that they do and all that they bring to make City Life uh, what it is. So this series, we're wrapping it up tonight, Shema. I'll be talking a little bit about that if you're visiting or if you're new. I'll, I'm going to do a, a bit of a recap. Uh, but then usually, you know, when we're wrapping up a series, you might be asking the question where we're going. We've got Father's Day on the horizon. But then after that, our summer series is going to be named after the worship experience for the first time instead of after the sermon. We're still going to have messages every week. We're still going to have a sermon series. It's going to be entitled Conversations. Every week is going to be somewhere in the Bible, a conversation that somebody had with God. So the Old Testament, right, you, you've got those conversations, and you've got, it could be in the Gospels, it could be a conversation that someone had with Jesus. Um, maybe even, how about, maybe Jesus, how about a conversation between God himself? Maybe that'll find its way onto the agenda this summer. But the summer that we're promoting is called a summer in song. I was listening to a uh, uh, Modern Day Hymns, which is a, a channel on, through, that you can get on Alexa, and it, it's, it's kind of walking you through the decades of all these worship songs that used to be these, these big moments, right? And, and as I was listening to it, I, had all, I began to have all these flashbacks of, of when we first came to the church, and we would sing this song, and we'd sing that song, and, and, uh, and so we started talking with the staff, so how great would it be that every week that we give a nod to some worship song that used to be the song everyone wanted to sing every week? And uh, now, it might be that it also it could be new for you because you've grown up in a Hillsong experience, or maybe you grew up in a gospel experience. And so some of it is going to be moving you through the decades, but also it's going to be moving you through the genre. You with me? And uh, we're a diverse church, and so different people have different memories. 
and uh, throughout the, the, the last couple of decades. And so that's going to be our summer experience. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be good. Hey, let me just give you just a little synopsis of what I'm going to talk about tonight, and then I'm, I'm going to teach for a little while. I, I just want to encourage you tonight that something inside of you at some point has got to come to the decision that you're responsible for your choices. The message tonight is on moral conversion, which is talking about at some point what you believe and how you live have to come into alignment with each other. But in order for that to happen, you have got to come to some point in your journey to resolve that you have a choice. If not, you will play the victim every time. Now, I understand that in Romans 7, Paul says, I don't do the things that I don't want to do, and I do the things that I do, right? But, but there he's talking about the human condition. He never intended that text to become permission for us to be a victim in the face of temptation. We're never going to be perfect, but that should not mean that we stop trying to be better. We're never going to be perfect, but it doesn't mean that we should stop trying to be better. The Bible says that the power of the resurrection is inside of us. And at some point for you and I, when we're facing temptation, when, when we're at a moment where there's this impulse inside of us either to do what we shouldn't or not do what we should, we've got to learn to find that power that is inside of all of us who have made a vow of devotion to Christ and stand strong in that moment. To either follow through on what we should or resist what we shouldn't. If nothing else comes from tonight, I hope that you have a renewed sense of self-governance over your life. You and I have got to exercise authority over ourselves. Over ourselves. So Father, as we move into this message tonight, into this teaching, I pray that for people here that are just struggling with repetition in a certain area of their life where there should not be repetition. Or maybe they're struggling with a lack of repetition in an area of their life where there should be. I pray that tonight that they would have a renewed sense of strength. I, I, I pray that they would find some righteous stubbornness. I, I pray, Father, that, 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 the, 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 that the same determination that we often bring to our rebelliousness, that, that we would bring it to our righteousness. That we would say, I will not cross this line ever again. No more. Stir that up inside of us. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen. This, this series, Shema, Shema is the Hebrew word that means both listen and obey. It's two sides of the same coin in the Hebrew language, right? For us, we want those to be two different words. I want to hear from God, and then I want to make a decision about what I'm going to do as to whether or not I'm going to obey. To obey. But in the, in the Hebrew language, in Hebrew cultures, no, if I'm, listen, if I'm hearing from God, then obedience should necessarily and always follow. We should be reflexive. I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. In the opening of the series, right, we brought the little patella reflex hammer in. If, 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 you've, if you've ever been to the doctor and, and they're, they're testing, right, they hit you right here in the knee and there's, you can try all you want to say, I'm not going to move your, your knee, but if you're relaxed and they hit that tendon, the knee's going to move. That's how our heart should be with obedience to God. He speaks, the reflex should be obedience. Yes, Lord. 
We've been teaching you this little simple three-word chart every week, rebellious, reluctant, and reflexive. This chart, these three words speak to every area of our lives. Some areas we're reflective, some areas we're reluctant, and some areas we're rebellious. The goal is we want to move every part of who we are to the other side of the scale. Again, we're not going to get all the way there, but let's get farther tomorrow than we are today. We've been introducing you each week to one of these five conversions that's based on teachings by a, a Jesuit priest by the name of Don Gelpie. There's five conversions that I believe that as you work through them, this is a lifetime journey, people, right? That's not a check your box. We're, we're working through these conversions our entire lives, and the more we commit ourselves to these five conversions, the, the, the smaller the gap becomes between listening and obeying. We're not just saying to you, go try harder and do better. We're saying, hey, there's a strategy that you can employ to bring change in your life. If you want there to be a smaller gap between listening to God and obeying him, then all five of these conversions are necessary. I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to teach on each one of them because we've done it in the series, and then I'll finish with the one that we're going to talk about tonight. Religious conversion. Now, this is the only one that I've reframed to match our theology on salvation. It's a little bit different than Don Gelpie's, and so in my notes, I have an asterisk by it because I don't want to imply that these are his words. The rest are. Religious conversion begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of my life. Number two, intellectual conversion involves taking responsibility for the truth or falsity of one's beliefs by examining and testing them, which means that there are things that you believe to be true that are true, but then there's also things that you embrace as true that are false. And part of this journey in life is figuring out which ones are which. Sociopolitical conversion involves accepting responsibility to seek the good for all humans and to work strategically with others to challenge and convert the wider world as well, again, each week we've spent time on each one of these individually. Effective conversion happens when a person takes personal responsibility for his or her emotional healing and development. And then tonight, where we're headed is moral conversion, means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral virtues one has embraced and to live according to a broader social responsibility. Meaning that, what do you believe to be true? And is that reflected in the life that you live? The life that you live outwardly and inwardly. And I like how at the end it talks about having a, a broader social responsibility, meaning that at some point you also have to ask, are these beliefs that I have, are they harming other people? Because it's not just about you. It's about the world that we live in. Moral conversion. We're going to explore moral conversion tonight through a simple story that we find in Scripture. Many of you are familiar with it. It's not long. It's simple in the sense that it's, a, it's just a, a few short verses, but it's definitely profound in the truth that it gives to us. Who decides right from wrong? Right? If we're going to talk about a moral conversion, at some point you've got to ask yourself the question, who gets to tell me what's right and what's wrong? If we're talking about this idea of, of, of choosing what you believe to be true and then making sure that you live according to those beliefs, you've got to start with who gets to tell me the things that I'm even supposed to believe to begin with. One of the reasons why you see it oftentimes with young adults when they go away to school, that, 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 they, that there's a crisis, that there, oftentimes there's a separation between how they live and what they believe, 
Not because they've lost some sense of self-control. It's because they lose their confidence and things that have been a foundation to their life. You've got to make sure that you understand why you believe what you believe. What is the source of those beliefs? If you don't connect your kids to the source of the belief, I'm telling you, they're going to have a moral crisis at some time in their lives. John 8, 1 through 5. The story of the woman caught in adultery. John 8, 1 through 5. We're going to break it out in sections and teach as we go. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Not that she had a reputation of being an adulterer, but, but that in the act itself. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? Now, I'm stopping here because right here in this story, we're learning about who gets to decide right and wrong. And how we come to believe that for ourselves. Right here in the beginning of these verses, what we find is a sacred gathering in a sacred place with a sacred text. This is important. A sacred gathering in a sacred place with a sacred text. Right, right, right here what we see is that Jesus with a group of people that you could call a congregation just like this. In a place that's believed to be sacred just like this. Talking about the word of God just like we're doing tonight. The only way that you're going to have a firm foundation, a moral footing in this life, is if you give yourself to the study of the sacred text with a sacred people in a sacred place. It's the people of God with the word of God in the place of God. Now, if you give your life to the study of scripture, but outside the context of people, right, and outside the context of a church, you're going to figure some stuff out, but I, can I just tell you, you're going to get a lot of it wrong. Is the Holy Spirit our teacher? Absolutely he is. But by God's design, there is a deposit of God that is unique in each side of us, and we need the perspective that each of us brings to understand everything that God has to say to us. This is part of the teaching that when you get to 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, when it talks about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts aren't just for the work that needs to be done. Spiritual gifts are also for the learning that needs to be done. Because every one of those spiritual gifts will see things in here that the others do not. And we need each other. Sacred text. A sacred people and a sacred place. The house of God, the word of God, and the people of God coming together. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired John in writing the gospel to give us those details because as the story moves forward, there are decisions being made about right and wrong. And I think the Holy Spirit is trying to help us to understand how you're going to make the right decision when it comes to right and wrong. Put yourself in the right setting. Augustine says, says it this way, it's an utterance a deed or a desire contrary to eternal law. An utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to eternal law. 
it's important that we understand sin is not just things that can be done. Sins can be things that we think. In fact, James tells us that that's where it always starts. It always starts as a desire. For us as a church, really since we came here in 2007, we've been teaching that there are four important questions that you've got to learn to ask when you're deciding what's right and what's wrong. As, as us as a congregation, as we've been looking at the Word of God with the people of God in the house of God, these are our four questions that we teach people. The first one is this, is blank a sin of omission or commission? This is so important because so many people think of sin as something that I'm not supposed to do, but they forget there's a whole lot of sin that's committed by not doing what we should. James 4, 17, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. It's in the notes. You can always download these off our website. Talks about the difference between the sins of omission and the sins of commission. We've got to conquer the immorality of our lives, but that doesn't mean that we've arrived. We spend the rest of our lives conquering the impulse and the desire to not do the good that we should. Is it a sin of omission or is it a sin of commission? The second one is this, is, is, is blank a sin of morality, conscience, or liberty? This is important too. Again, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but it's Romans 13, 8 through 14, and Romans 14, all of that chapter. Paul here talks about there's, there's, there's three distinct categories of wrong. Now, there's universal morality. Those are things that will be wrong for all people for all time. Ten Commandments are a great example of that. If Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, the Ten Commandments are still going to be wrong for whoever's alive 10,000 years from now. It's not going to change. Universal morality. It's wrong for all people for all time. Then he talks about matters of conscience. This is where you can enter into the world of legalism. When you take things that violate your conscience and try to make it a moral issue for somebody else. Alcohol consumption. I always use that as an example. The Bible, there's a prohibition against drunkenness, but there's not a prohibition against alcohol consumption. So if you've chosen by a personal conviction to not consume alcohol, that's a matter of conscience for you, and it should be respected. But then you should not take that thing that's a matter of conscience for you and make it a moral issue for someone else. You follow me? There's all kinds of things right, right, in this life. You've got to make a decision. Is, is it, is, should it be wrong for all people, for all time? And if it's not, it still could be wrong if it violates your conscience. And Paul says, honor your conscience. Trust it. And just because you see somebody else doing something that you feel wrongdoing, that should not be permission for you to violate your conscience. And then I love he doesn't stop there. Paul talks about this idea of forgoing liberties. So good. That even if something, fill in the blank, is not a moral issue, it's not wrong for all people for all time, and it doesn't violate your conscience, you might choose to give it up for the sake of somebody else. You might say, I'm at liberty to do it, but I'm not going to because of the harm that it could create in someone else. I might feel at liberty to watch a certain, certain movie, but I'm going to forgo that liberty when I'm with my young children so that I'm not exposing them to something prematurely. You tracking with me? 
Morality, conscience, and liberty. Third one is this. Is it a sin that is time-bound? All of these are such important questions. Is, it a, is blank a sin that is time-bound? Let me read to you out of Matthew 15, 10 to 13, then I'm going to jump down to 15. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear, listen, he said, and try to understand it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. Praise the Lord. Is that right? Come on. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. You realize this is Jesus turning upside down centuries of teaching when he said these made these statements. Now listen to this, he gets to 13 and he said, Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted. I believe that verse 13 here is an important principle here for us in understanding scripture. That there are traditions that find their way into the Christian experience that God never intended for us to have. And Jesus says, we're gonna uproot those things. He's uprooting one right here. He's uprooting one right here. He's saying, we never said that. Stop telling people that. And I think this idea of uprooting, you see it continuing in throughout the New Testament. I'm not alone in this. There's a whole stream of people believe this. And I would argue most every church in the world practices this. They just call it different things. We call it the principle of time-boundness. You're going to have a hard time finding a church that still requires women to wear a head covering in church. But did you know that requirement's in here? Now, now some churches do because they don't believe in the principle of time-boundness, but we do as a church. See, uh, this other idea of things being uprooted is I believe that God made allowance for certain cultural norms when the Bible was written because the world was not yet ready for that change. And, and so eventually he knows the world is going to grow past that belief. Now you say that might get dangerous, and I would say to you, yes, it can be. Because it cannot be misused. Which is why we understand the word of God in the house of God with the people of God protects us from over-applying that principle to places that are just inconvenient to us. The last one is this. It's the sin that leads to death. Not the last of the sermon. Don't get too happy. It's just the last point in this. 1 John 5, 17 talks about sins that lead to death. The Catholic Church has been teaching this. The Protestant Church, we need to catch up to this a little bit. I believe in this idea of venial versus mortal sins. Venial is, a, uh, I think, a Latin word that means forgiveness. It just means that a sin that doesn't carry the same consequence. And you might say, Fred, well, you know, all sin is sin. Yes, it is. And the smallest of sin is significant enough to separate you from God. But not all sin has the same social consequence and the same spiritual consequence to you. If I feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit to read my Bible and I don't do it, that's sin. If I wake up tomorrow and go rob three banks and murder 15 people, you tracking with me? That's sin. Those two are not the same. There are different social implications and it is harmful to me personally in varying degrees. All sin leads to death. The slightest of sin is enough for Jesus to come to the cross because of the holiness of God. But we have got to understand that some things are more harmful than others. Let me share this idea with you. If you ignore the complexity of something in an effort to simplify truth, you inevitably create the confusion you were trying to avoid. 
If you ignore the complexity of something in an effort to simplify truth, you inevitably create the confusion you were trying to avoid. This idea of a sin that leads to death and the sin of time and, and, and time bound, meaning that it has an expiration date on it, these two things go hand in hand in an important way. Any sin that is ever listed in scripture with the stated consequence of spiritual death, eternal damnation, or the loss of heaven as an inheritance can never be time bound or a matter of conscience. We are never free to take anything off of those lists and say it doesn't violate my conscience. Well, maybe it doesn't, but it should. And I've got three texts. Again, not going there for the sake of time. You can download the notes if you want to do a deeper dive. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. We are a church that believes in moral absolutes. And we are a church that believes that these lists in the Bible, they matter. And they're given to us by the Holy Spirit as, as boundaries, as guardrails. So that there is a whole list of things out there that we can never say that it's a matter of conscience or it's time bound. Next question is this. As I look at this story, I'm pressed to ask myself the question, is Jesus minimizing immorality? Is Jesus minimizing immorality? Now you might be with me all the way to this point and say, Fred, I believe that this book is full of all kinds of truth and I get it, the word of God with the people of God in the house of God. That's how we learn it together and I want that to be the foundation of my life. But if I don't follow it, does it really matter if I'm forgiven? And is that not what Jesus did for this woman in this moment? Is Jesus minimizing immorality? John 8, 6 through 8, reads this way. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Is, it, is it, am I the only one? This is on my. Do you have a list when you get to heaven of things you want to know? Jesus, could you just tell what were you writing? Right? It doesn't say he was doodling. It doesn't say, right? It says he was writing. There's all kinds of conjecture that's out there. I was kind of laughing this week. Dad jokes, right? We don't need a, a crowd. We just laugh at our own jokes. I was like, what if he was, what if, what if he was, he's a list guy. He was just making his to do list for the day. Pick up some new sandals. Turn some more water into wine. What if his to-do list travel through history? Make sure City Life Church gets 311 Selden Road. Yeah. I'm going to show up at Revive 2021, the women's conference. What if he's just writing this stuff down? I want to make sure I don't forget to do these things. He's just writing. Writing in the dirt. Does grace erase the seriousness of sin? If we're not careful, that's where this story will lead us. I don't believe that it does. I believe what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's challenging religious communities. 
And he's given time, I think, for the crowd for it to sink in what these religious leaders are doing. See, if your goal of pointing out the sin in other people is just to make you feel more right, then your sin is worse than whatever they're doing. I think Jesus is just letting the crowd observe just a, a selah moment. I can borrow a word from the Psalms. He's just letting it sink in. I, he wanted them to see the egregiousness of these people that were supposed to be their spiritual leaders. I think he's also challenging that we often fail in how we prioritize sin. Oh, we do some prioritizing, don't we? Usually our stuff at the bottom of the list, other people's stuff at the top of the list. And Jesus here is saying, there's a time and a place to prioritize, right? Venial versus mortal sins, all those types of things. Morality, matter of conscience, foregoing liberties. But if you're going to make a list, make sure you get it right. If not, you will end up giving yourself permission and shaming others. He's saying, stop looking for sin in the world with tunnel vision. And especially without a mirror. The grace that he's showing to this woman is not by any means minimizing what's happened. What he's trying to do is elevate all of the other things that are sin that they've grown numb to. Listen to these verses here in Matthew 2, 13 to 16, 17 to 18. I'm going to read them at different times. I'm just going to do 13 to 16. We're going to move back in time here. Jesus has just been born. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt. And the child and his mother, the angel said, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. That night Joseph left for Egypt and the child with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Listen to verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. God made a way for Jesus to escape. He didn't make a way for those other babies to escape. He protected this family. He did not protect these families. What's that about? I think all of this is part of what the Bible is trying to help us to understand how serious sin is. These people were not forsaken by God. These people were chosen by God. And if there are parades in heaven, these families all got one. These families are heroes in heaven, not forsaken by God. They carried the weight of this prophetic picture of how God allows the innocent to die so that others can be rescued. Because that's the story of the gospel for you and for me. So many times in scripture where it seems like people have been forgotten, those are the moments where God has picked people out of his sovereignty to give them one of the greatest honors. People who in their life, even in their suffering, carry the prophetic voice saying to the world, Jesus is coming and he's going to die for your sins. Anytime our suffering declares that to the world, we've not been forsaken, we've been honored. 
And it's stories like this that remind us. We have to read these stories in connection with the story of this woman so that we never forget that all of heaven understands the weightiness and the seriousness of sin because it sent Jesus to the cross. Romans 3, 23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. 6, 23, right, says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The story does not minimize sin. It reminds us of the egregiousness of sin and that we're all guilty of it. Until I understand the seriousness of sin, I'll never fully understand the doctrine of grace. Grace is the power to stop. It is not permission to indulge. Until I understand the seriousness of sin, I'll never fully understand the doctrine of grace. Grace is the power to stop. It is not permission to indulge. My final question tonight is, what is Jesus' priority? What is Jesus' priority? John 8 9 through 11 said, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. We understand why that is, right? Because they had the most sin to remember. And so only Jesus was left. Now, I think we misunderstand this. We think that it's only Jesus was left with this woman, but it doesn't say that. Only Jesus was left with this woman in the middle of the crowd. There was still a massive crowd that was there. The only people that left were the accusers. See, see, it's not always a bad thing when some people leave the people of God if they're going to bring harm through their presence. And so only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? It doesn't mean condemn what she did as being wrong. It means condemn her as in stone her to death. No, Lord, she said, and then Jesus said, neither do I. But then he says something important. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Because grace is not permission to indulge. It's the power to stop. Second Corinthians 7, 14 Right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That was a part of Jewish culture. A part, it was central to Jewish culture. This idea that when there is sin, there is confession and repentance and forgiveness flows. So when he says to this woman, go and sin no more, he's speaking to what they already believed as a community, that forgiveness is possible. I love that Jesus bookends the moment with using scripture with this phrase of go and sin no more and the accusers started with using scripture and their accusation. Jesus is like, oh, you want to use the Bible? Let's talk about the Bible because I wrote it. Go and sin no more is a command to repent. I'm not going to teach on all f- 
five of these. I just want to throw them up there if this idea of confession and repentance is forgiveness is, is new for you. These, all five of these steps are important if it's true repentance. If you're going to go and sin no more. If you've done something that you shouldn't do and the degree of seriousness should, should dictate the degree of the formality that you work through these steps. There has to be an acknowledgement by you that what you did was wrong. There has to be acceptance, right? You have to say, this, this was wrong for me. Confession means that you've got to say that to all the people that what you did affected. Yep, it's important. Forgiveness means that the people you harmed have to give forgiveness, but you know what else? You've got to give forgiveness to yourself. You've got to give forgiveness to yourself, whether those people give it to you or not. If you don't confess, listen to me, you rob other people of the opportunity to forgive. And that does something in them and in you. Restitution. And if you stole something, if you broke something, if you, you got to make it right. You got to make it right. And the last one is resolve. Something inside of you has got to find a holy determination to say, I'm not going to be that person anymore. It's not a coincidence, right? The order of the Bible is instructive to us. Can we agree on that? We talk about that a lot here. It's not a coincidence that some of those popular phrases in the Bible fall into this chapter, which is chapter 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? Many of you have heard those verses many times. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. The other verses were out of the New Living Translation. And I just want to throw these up because a lot of people like to throw around this promise that the truth will set you free. It can, but there's some things that you've got to do to get there. When it, when it says here, continue, it means giving Scripture authority over you. It's not just saying I acknowledge that it is the Word of God. It means that I acknowledge that I want the Word of God to govern my life. Continue in it means giving Scripture authority over your life. And then where your life does not align with this, you don't alter this to fit you. You alter yourself to fit this. To know means examining your life in the light of Scripture. You can know what's in this Bible. The question is, do you really know what's in this Bible in relation to the choices and the attitudes and the actions of your life? you got to make it personal, people. He's not looking for professors. He's looking for disciples. In free, the truth will set you free. It means bringing your life in alignment with Scripture. Those three principles are important if you're going to know the liberty and the freedom that Jesus tells us that this book promises. Moral conversion means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral virtues one has embraced and to live according to a broader social responsibility. I invite the band to come back up. We're going to close in a song in just a minute. But as they're coming, these questions are not going to come up onto the screen. Again, they're in the notes. You can download it. 
But I learned about these five, as I've shared before, these five conversions while I was reading another book called Moses in Pharaoh's House. And, and this was just like one chapter in the book. I was fascinated by these five conversions. And in this book, there's a list of questions at the end of each conversion that's just explained and described. And I thought these four, after the section on moral conversion, they gave me pause, and I hope they give you pause too. Have I taken personal responsibility for my life and actions? Have I taken personal responsibility? I understand I've got hurts and wounds from my past, things that people have done to me. We all have it. And some of you have it worse than I ever will. I get that. I understand that. That's why we believe in therapy and counseling. Those are real. You gotta, that's part of effective conversion. There's heavy lifting involved in healing. But at some, at some point, at some point, I have to come, become responsible for my actions. No matter what's prompting them, regardless of what vulnerability has entered into my life from something from my past, at some point, I have to posture myself in a way that says, I'm not going to let those things determine who I am anymore. Do I act, listen to this one, do I act the same when I am in public as when I am alone? Hello. Do I act the same when I am in public as when I am alone? Do I cultivate virtues and develop habits? After the song, I'm going to charge you at the end with a practical step that you can take to do that. Do I cultivate virtues and develop habits that enable me to live by my principles? And the last one is this. Do I acknowledge and confront my inconsistent behavior? Do I acknowledge and confront my inconsistent behavior? Are you just tolerating it? Because if you're just tolerating it, everyone around you is suffering from it. Something inside of us has got to say, if my life is not lining up with this book, it's time to make some changes. And God's given you everything that you need to be the person that he's called and created you to be. Stand with me as we pray. Jesus, we bless your name. Father, I know for all of us, messages like this are hard. They're hard. I remember, Father, years ago when I would come into a setting like this, when I was living my life for myself and I was still lost, and Jesus, you had not found me yet. How conspicuous I felt when the topic of the sermon was the description of my life. And then I remember even how I continue to feel conspicuous even after Jesus, you found me and I made a vow of devotion to you in December of 1990 that still so many times the topics of the sermons spoke to my recent past, my recent past. Father, I pray for people here tonight that feel conspicuous. I pray for the people that are here tonight that feel awkward and uncomfortable. And I pray that they would recognize that that feeling, that feeling is the work of grace transforming and changing 
their heart. May it be that we would resolve to be the people that you've called and created us to be. May it be that we would never stop reaching for our Shema. Let's worship together.